we are glad to have your parents here tonight. <laughs> Get to thank them in person for blessing us with you. I mean that. Well, good evening, church. Boy, that was a good, uh, good evening. We'll be in Titus chapter 3 tonight. I'll read that for you in just a moment. We are finishing the overview of Titus that we've done the last three weeks. Well, we took a break last week as I was out of town, but we're going to finish this week. And one of the things that we've noted about Titus, out of all the things that you could draw from Titus, is it's a letter written from the Apostle Paul to an individual, Titus, who he had trained and raised up as a leader in the church to be an evangelist. And Paul had sent Titus to a little island called Crete, where there were most likely Christians who were converted on the day of Pentecost. There were Cretans there at the day of Pentecost. And they had most likely, after probably several weeks or months, gone back to Crete. And some 20 years later, they were probably still practicing Christians, but yet still practicing Jews in that area. Uh, they were probably one and the same and not yet formally organized themselves as a body that we would call a church. And so Paul sends Titus there, and Titus has one job. And that job is to set in order the things that are lacking so that in every town, in every city, in every place in this island of Crete, there might become organized, sustainable, healthy bodies of believers. So in every town, Paul wanted Titus to go into there and find the Christians who were probably still at the synagogue worshiping um, with the Jews, but also pulling aside and recognizing their own faith, probably still taking communion together, but not organized yet as a body. He was supposed to go to them and organize them as local Christians, as the church. And so the first job that Paul gave Titus in chapter 1 was to establish good leadership. So as we're looking at this for our benefit, we're saying, well, what does Paul say to Titus on how to build a healthy church? And point number one is that you have to have good leadership. Point number two, we see in chapter 2, Titus is not just to set in order good leadership, but he's also to set in order good relationships. And so leadership in chapter 1 builds the church, or defines the church, pardon me. Chapter 2, we see that discipleship, uh, the relationships from men to men, women to women, older to younger, transgenerational, is where we build ourselves up in the body of Christ to grow into that perfected place that we're supposed to be. And finally, in chapter 3, we're going to talk about evangelism. But we're not going to necessarily talk about um, methods tonight. You know, I'm not going to uh, sell you on a pitch to go out door knocking two by two with uh, certain tracts or pamphlets. That's not necessarily what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the spirit of the attitude of evangelism and what it takes for a church, culturally in the church, to be evangelistic in nature. And uh, Paul instructs Titus on how to coach up the churches in this area. So I want to read chapter 3, all 15 verses for you, and then we'll jump in and study it together. He says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So some time ago, a man by the name of Randy Newman wrote a really honest, a little bit rough, but very insightful book um, to the Christian world entitled Questioning Evangelism. It's called Questioning Evangelism. And in this book, it goes through a lot of different things, but one of the things it explains is that many Christians today, especially in American culture, feel a considerable amount of frustration and even anger towards the culture around them. They feel angry how they mostly seem to be portrayed in the culture, in the media, and how others seem to twist reality and sort of get away with it. And what he was noticing is that for a large, in a large portion, Christians felt really frustrated how people viewed them and how people portrayed them in the culture. For example, if you were, to, uh, there's a few television shows that you could watch even today where especially one I'm thinking about, it's a, uh, there's a Christian politician in this show, and this woman is like the worst person ever to be depicted. She's incredibly judgmental. She's really mean. Um, she's kind of dumb. She's very hypocritical. She kind of has the knuckle-dragging, sort of uh, knuckle-headed kind of posture to her. And no one on the show, and no one really seems to object or stand up and say, this isn't really right. In fact, the more that this show and this movie kind of uh, proposes this, the more the critics seem to love it. Or have you ever noticed, like, uh, if you watch a national news broadcast or even a local news broadcast when an event or a tragedy takes place, at times they will find someone to interview who might be a Christian, and they get this Christian perspective, and they say things that are just, like, like where do they find the certain people to interview to represent Christianity on some of these news interviews? You know what I mean? It's like, the tornado hit because them liberals did this thing and God just wants to punish them, you know? And, and you're like, ah, oh, man, that's not exactly how I want Christianity be, to be portrayed. But it always seems to happen that way. And I'm always like, where do they find that guy? Because 
Like, I'm a member of a church of like 300 people, and I know a lot of these people, and they don't act like that. You know, that's, that's not really who we are. But there are a lot of Christians that feel hostility, frustration, and yes, even anger towards being presented that way in our world. And I'm not saying that is a whole truth, but it's a generic feeling, so to speak. And you, you know, many people are tired of, you would say, liberal professors rewriting history, activist judges redefining morality, liberal theologians rewriting the Bible. And so you, then you even hear things like a man by the name of Christopher Hitchens. He's a pretty popular atheist of the new atheist movement in our, in our time. And he said a statement like this that people seem to resonate towards. He said, faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. And then you step back and you say, wait a minute, he's talking about me, right? That's what he says about faith and religion. Is this group more mean, more selfish, and more stupid than anyone else in our community? I, I don't think so. So Randy Newman in this book uh, that I was just telling you about, about evangelism, said many Christians appear angry in the media because they might actually be angry. And we, maybe we never say it out loud, but sometimes we can have this sort of attitude. Well, in Titus chapter 3, Paul talks about how when the gospel enters our life, he finishes chapter 2 talking about how the grace of God appears, training us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to get ready to live a life of holiness and good works. He talks about how the gospel reshapes how we feel about people on the outside. People who, yes, even might dislike us, who misrepresent us, who might even persecute us. He says in verse 1, listen, about Christians, how we're supposed to treat the world outside of us. Remind them, these believers in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show our perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect courtesy. And the key word there, I would say, is all. So this is not just a disposition or a way that we treat Christians, but this is the way we treat all people. Gentle, with courtesy, humility. That's the command that Paul gives for us. But what he does next in verse 3 is incredibly important for you to anchor yourselves into what he's trying to teach us here. This is exactly how Paul always writes uh, in most of his epistles when he's trying to explain something. He uses the word, if you see in verse 3, the very first word is for. Or you might replace the word for with because. So all of these qualities that you and I are supposed to have with people that are not Christians or maybe don't even like Christians... It's an incredibly difficult thing to do, but he says, have all these qualities because of a reason. And then he gives one of the clearest, most concise explanations of the Gospels found anywhere in any of his letters. And this is, a, as a side note, for those of you that read, uh, I mean, Paul wrote half the New Testament, so it's important you understand how Paul writes so that you can make sense when you're reading it. This is a key to understanding how Paul teaches. He always teaches his commands flowing out of the declaration of the gospel. It's not that we do these things that make us better people that God then approves of. It's that we become aware of what God has done for us in Christ, and then we become this way. You got to get, it's one way or the other. 
And what Paul always explains is that this nature, this disposition, this attitude that we're supposed to have towards those outside of us comes from an understanding of what God has done for us. Luther said it this way, that imperatives in the Bible always flow from indicatives. Now I'll explain what that means. You guys remember English class or am I just giving you like the cold sweats right now? You probably don't like that. Do uh, you remember like sentence diagramming and, and grammar school? You all remember grammar class? I'll be quick so we can get through this. But imperatives, imperatives are commands, right? Everybody remember that? If something is an imperative in a sentence, that means you're being told to do something. It's a command. Indicatives are not commands. They are just statements of observation or statements of fact. They're indicatives. They're, they're indicative of what you see. And so imperatives are commands of what God wants us to do. Those flow out of indicatives of what God has done for us. So the facts of what God has done for us shape us to fulfill the commandments of what God has told us to do. You see, one principle that Paul lays out for us over and over is this. Before the gospel tells you how to behave or who to become, it always tells you what to behold. Did you get that? Before the gospel, before the Bible ever tells you how to behave or who to become, you know, those are commands, how to behave and who to become, it always tells you what you should behold, what you should gaze at. The beauty of the gospel, the truth of who God is, his nature, the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, the beauty of the gospel of what God and Jesus Christ and His infinite love has done for you, when you understand that, then you'll rightly approach what you're supposed to do and who you are supposed to be. And so I want to divide the, this text into two parts. The indicatives, which are not the commandments, but the observations, and then we'll talk about the commandments, the imperatives. Let's start with the description in verse 3. Just walk with me through this list. So Paul has told us in verses 1 and 2 that to those outside of us, we're to have humility. We are to be respectful. We are to be obedient. We are to be ready for good works. We are not to speak evil. We are not to quarrel. We are to be gentle. And we should show all courtesy towards people outside of us. That's a lot of things. And then he moves into verse 3 for here's what we know. Here's a whole list of indicatives. These are things we know. He says, we can do this because we know these things. Verse 3, we ourselves were once, the first thing, foolish. Foolish. So right now, Paul's going to begin to describe you and I outside of Jesus Christ before Christianity. He says we were once foolish. This is a word that literally means ignorant or our minds being warped. Our hearts became spiritually warped. We became moral ignorant. The Apostle John said it this way, that we began to love darkness rather than light. That's what the condition of being in sin is, that you actually begin to love darkness more than you love light. He says that the light looked dark and the dark looked light. Right seems wrong and wrong seems right. Paul would argue it this way in Romans 1 verse 21, that our minds became twisted. We became confused. We became distorted in the way we think and the way we thought about things. We were foolish. We, don't, we weren't just foolish. He said we were also 
disobedient. And it's not just that our morality got distorted. We disobeyed those things. Uh, we disobeyed the things we actually knew to be right. That's what it means to be disobedient. It's not just that you got tripped up or you made a mistake or you didn't actually know. Disobedience is actually to know the thing you ought to do and to not actually do that thing. And we have been those people before coming to Christ. He says that we were not just foolish and disobedient, but we were led astray. Our hearts in sin have gotten us at times into a condition that we were susceptible to being deceived. And it's not always that we're just honestly tricked into deception. No, that can happen when we are gullible and naive, certainly, most, most, most certainly. But also there are times in our spiritual condition when we wanted to be led astray, wanted to be tricked. It's like the person who wants to hate somebody else, and so they just find reasons to do that. I hear oftentimes myself and even others blame their issues on those who influence them. Like, for instance, oh, I just hung out with the wrong crowd. Like, if I didn't just hang out with the wrong crowd, I wouldn't have gotten tripped up. But here's the problem. The reason we oftentimes hang out with the wrong crowd is because we like the wrong crowd better than the right crowd. We actually like that better. We didn't just hang out with the wrong crowd. We were actually the wrong crowd ourselves and got tripped up into that. So we were led astray. He says we were slaves to various passions. Our separation from God left a gap, a need in our hearts that made us dependent upon other things. Think of it like drowning. Now, probably don't enjoy the thought of drowning, but just for a moment, picture how that takes place. You know, you don't die from drowning by holding your breath, right? You don't, you don't die from actually holding your breath. You die from breathing water in. And when you're not breathing air in, you have to breathe something else. And that's the same with our spiritual condition. When you are not breathing in the law of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, when you're not breathing those things in, you don't just hold your breath. You end up consuming and breathing in other things. You become slaves to other passions. One of the biggest lies that our culture tells us is that if we reject the laws of God, that will lead us to freedom. We will be unshackled from the constraints of God's laws. It's almost like God's laws put handcuffs on us and they constrain our behavior. And if we could just get rid of God's laws, then we'll have freedom. But it's actually the exact opposite. When we reject God and his laws, we become addicted to, slaves to, other passions. We've said on multiple occasions that our hearts are hardwired from God to worship and to serve things that we believe to be bigger than us. We were created beings to do that. You were designed to direct that service and that worship to God because he rightly deserves it. And when you cut off that relationship because of sin, you will take that instinct to worship and serve somewhere else. And we become addicted to things bigger than us. And lastly, he says that we pass our days in malice and envy, hated by other people and hating one another. Whenever you put something or someone in the place of God, when you separate yourself because of sin from God and you begin to take that drive to worship and serve something and you take that away from God and you place it on something else, whether that be a person or a thing or a job, when you do that, you will inevitably end up 
being frustrated with that thing. Jonathan Edwards, the um, American theologian, said it this way. He said, what you idolize, you will eventually demonize. The thing you idolize will eventually become the thing that you demonize. I know it sounds kind of ironic, but it's the way that it works. You put so much weight because God is the only being in the world that can actually bear up under the weight of all of your expectations, all of the weight of your hopes, all of the weight of your dreams, all of the weight of your expectations of the things that you want. And when you remove him from your life and you transition those hopes and dreams and expectations of what you need in this life to make you feel fulfilled, when you put that upon a person, whether it be a spouse or a friend, or you put that upon a job, eventually that thing or that person will let you down. It won't be able to fulfill you. It won't be able to give you meaning and purpose and identity. It will eventually disappoint you. And so we pass our days, as Paul said, in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another because we have done to these things what we were supposed to give to God. And finally, he says, as I mentioned, what you idolize, you demonize. Uh, there's a great picture of this. Uh, most of you probably have maybe seen this, uh, the movie The Lord of the Rings. You all seen that movie? J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the book, and then it later became a pretty popular film in the early 2000s. Um, and one of the main characters in that is a man by the name of Gollum, or I shouldn't say a man, a, a thing but called Gollum. And he has this ring, and it eventually has all the power in it. All the power is condensed into this one ring. And eventually, he's the one that possesses it, and it turns him evil. And he's looking at this thing, and he begs it, and he calls it his precious, like he can't give it up. And what's interesting about that story, if you go uh, behind the scenes, um, when this Lord of the Rings was pu published in the 1950s, there was a woman who wrote a letter to Tolkien, and she objected to this idea. She said the Dark Lord who made the rings, um, the Dark Lord would never have put all of his power into one ring, is what she said to him. She said that would make him vulnerable. If, if he put all of his power into one ring, that would make him vulnerable, so that wouldn't be smart to do. She was kind of against the storyline. And Tolkien wrote back in this to a letter to her. He said, yes, but this is always what we do as humans. We always place all of our hope and give all of our power in some external object, which is thus exposed to capture or destruction with disastrous results to ourselves. What he's saying is our life we place oftentimes the value and the preciousness and what we want out of life onto one thing when we were always supposed to put that upon God. And so Paul says this is exactly what happened to us. So this is all kind of heavy if you read there in verses 3, um, how Paul begins to describe our condition outside of Christ. Paul calls this spiritual death, being dead in our sins. But verse 4 has a pretty big transition statement. When he says, but, but when the goodness of God appears. That's a big, big transition. The beauty of the gospel is found in that one simple transition, but. But you notice that before Paul gets to that, he brings us face to face with our sin. As a side note, when we think about evangelism, this is probably one of the most uncomfortable parts of evangelism. When Paul spends all of verse 3 explaining to us the problem of sin. 
sometimes we kind of want to skip over the problem of our sin, what it makes us become, what it does to us, what we've done. We kind of want to skip over that and get just to the gospel part. But the reality is you'll never appreciate the beauty of the gospel until you understand the depths of your sin. It will never make you weep for joy or it will never really change you if you don't really appreciate how deep your sin really runs. The level to which you understand the depth of sin will be the same level to which you appreciate the gospel. Spurgeon would say it this way. He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck is the man who, to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer, by whose blood he has been cleansed. Now look how he explains this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. You notice what's in that sentence and what's not? Who is the only character in verse 4? Who's the only actor in this story in verse 4? God, right? God is in verse 4, and then he's in verse 5, and you and I are not in that. God is the only actor. It is not that we did something or accomplished something. It's that God did this. In light of verse 3, which is the story about us, we see verse 4. And then he says it's not because of works in verse 5, done, be, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's not goodness that we've produced. It's not a glimmer of hope that God then, then uh, triggered God's affections for us. It was God's unexhaustible mercy. He did it by this. It says, by the washing of regeneration. He cleansed us from the stain of sin. He washed us. Powerful and explosive word in the Greek, which means it, this was a word that Greek philosophers used. In fact, Paul borrowed this word washing and regeneration. He borrowed this word from the Greek philosophers who lived in a world that believed in reincarnation. They basically believed that life go to, would go in cycles. Uh, a human life would be born, it would be pure, the world would corrupt that life, that life would die, it would be reincarnated and come back pure, and it would be regenerated, regenerated over and over to be pure. And Paul grabs that word and says, life is not really a, a bunch of cycles that keeps getting regenerated over and over. He's saying, no, the world does not go in cycles, but regeneration happens once in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can imagine Greek philosophers in Paul's day being pretty, pretty frustrated with him that he stole their word, that he stole their concept of being reborn in purity and beauty to say that that, that is actually tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, don't underestimate the power of this new birth. The people of God, the people that God used to change the world were deeply flawed people, but when they were regenerated, when they were born again, they became the very people that would change history. He says that then there's a renewal of the Holy Spirit, meaning we are renewed, we are made again, our hearts are retrained for righteousness. That's what the word renewal means, to be retrained. In chapter 2, Paul talks about how the grace of God trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live for righteousness. This, this idea of training, that being renewed by the Holy Spirit, isn't just um, being taught or having knowledge given to you. It's in fact actually the idea of strengthening. 
and maturing like you would strengthen a muscle or a child would mature and become the best version of themselves. That's what he's doing here by the Holy Spirit and God's grace gives that to us. And he says he pours that out upon us richly that we might be heirs of the hope of eternal life. Okay, we're just about done, but all of that, all of that is just indicatives, meaning that is just statements of fact. Who we were and what God did. And here's why that matters for evangelism. Here's why it matters that you understand that for evangelism. There are a host of imperatives for you believers here tonight uh, for evangelism. Go back to verses 1 and 2. Remember the list of things that, that I read to you from Paul about what we're supposed to be? If you forget any part of that story, that's why it took enough time to explain that story to you. If you forget any part of that story, you'll miss the ability to live out these commands or these imperatives. Look at the first one. He says that we are to be submissive. The better word might be have humility. Why would we have humility towards those outside of us, especially rulers? Well, we know that God saved us. We didn't save ourselves, and he had to save us from a pretty terrible condition. And so we have humility. He says that we should have gentleness, or you might say patience. Of course people who are outside of Christ don't understand, right? How shocked should we be when non-Christians act like non-Christians? We probably shouldn't be as shocked as we are when people who aren't Christians act like people who aren't Christians. And so maybe we should be gentle and patient with them, restored to the sanity of the fact that they are not Christians. This means that God needs to use the gospel with them, and we have to be willing to share that to them. He says that we should be deeply compassionate, meaning, uh, verse 1, he says that we should have a regard for all people. Because they are currently dead in sin, like you were once in your past life dead as well. They were, but they were made in the image of God, just like you. And then the word starts to look different. Um, you find yourself, you know, they were dead. They, they are dead, just like you were dead and saved by the great grace of Jesus Christ. And then he says that we should be ready or eager to do good works. Not that you have to, but that you want to. To declare the glory of God and to love other people because it is now your nature. You know, God is after a people who are gracious because he has been incredibly gracious to them. He is after a people who are active and looking for those who are lost because he himself is one who found us when we were lost. He is looking for people who will love unconditionally to those who are hurtful and sinful and wrong because he has unconditionally loved us when we were in that state as well. And so he finishes this way in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and he wants us to insist on these things so that those who believe in God, in verse 8, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But he finishes this way in verse 9. Listen carefully. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, because those things are unprofitable and they're worthless. And as for the person who stirs up division constantly, warn him once and then warn him twice, but then have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. Here's the point. Don't get distracted 
with all the things that cause so many people to be splintered, divided, hateful, frustrated, and angry. What we need to make the main thing is the main thing. The story that he's told us here in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, that we were once lost, now we're saved, reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ, washed and regenerated. And that offer to be washed and regenerated, to be made a new person, stands today for anyone who might find themselves outside of Christ. And you and I have to be humble and sober because we recognize that that's where we came from and optimistic and hopeful for those that are outside of Christ who might also hear of the gospel and want to come to know Jesus. But a lot of those interactions will be determined by our attitude towards people outside. Are we courteous and gentle? Are we long-suffering and patient? Are we like our Lord who stood before people who were against him, who wanted to hurt him, and cared for them? And like he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Will we be people like that? When we understand the indicatives, the story of the gospel, we'll gladly live the imperatives, the commands to go share this message with those who are outside. But you've got to get the first part first, the story of the gospel. It's got to make sense to you, and you've got to have it not just in your head, but in your heart. And if you're missing that, don't understand it, or don't maybe know how it connects to your life, the invitation stands constantly, and it's certainly open now. You can come as we stand and sing.